to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please see the Parents Menu at ICDL.com, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, for the virtual floor time consultations for parents. There you can schedule an appointment, look at the virtual DIR home program services, and see the weekly parent support meetings registration. We aim to help you implement the developmental individual differences relationship-based model at home, taking into account where your child is developmentally and their individual sensory processing differences within your safe and nurturing relationship to promote and support their developmental potential. Hello listeners, I'm Daria Brown and this week is our part two of our podcast with professional child development associates. This week, it's Julie Miller, who's an occupational therapist. She's been with PCDA for over 15 years. She was the head of the occupational therapy and feeding department, but now she's PCDA's clinical director and closely, still works closely with the wonderful team dedicated to providing feeding services at PCDA. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much, Daria. I'm excited to be here. It's great to have you. And it's such an important topic because I facilitate the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning's parent virtual meeting every week. And it's rare that we don't get a question about problems around eating and meals. So I was thrilled that you agreed to do this podcast. So thank you. No, absolutely. And I agree. It is, it is part of when we're working with families, uh, an area of stress in the parenting experience and supporting their children. So let's just remind people who missed part one or haven't listened to it yet, what is PCDA? Sure. Uh, PCDA stands for Professional Child Development Associates. It's a nonprofit therapy clinic in Pasadena, California. Um, we are a completely DIR floor time based agency um, and we start began um, 25 years ago, uh, our founders being uh, Dr. Diane Cullinane and Mimi Weiner. And from the very beginning of the creation of the organization, um, they really wanted a model that, that united all of the therapists that work together. And so from very early on, we've been using uh, DIR in all of our services. It's wonderful. And one of the things that Juliana mentioned in the podcast about the music therapy was how helpful it was for her to have families come and to be able to get occupational therapy down the hall and you know see whatever other services they needed just in the same building which makes it so much easier for families as well as for the team who's monitoring the children oh absolutely every every time i'm in a situation of um joining some any type of dir class and learning and now classes are so amazingly like multinational when you join and the thing that i always have to keep in mind is i've had this privilege of expanding my career and learning and growing in an agency that my norm is that i've got a whole team of clinicians um, who are all using this model um, and i i recognize every time oh my goodness how how wonderful that can be and how so many practitioners around the world are, you know, sometimes by themselves or just with one or two other clinicians who they might happen to know who are using the model. So it is a, it is a really neat opportunity and helps us see, I think a lot of, you know, the, the multidisciplinary, the transdisciplinary 
view of this model and how we all fit into it in different areas and how we can celebrate those individual differences of our fields and of our knowledge knowledge base, but how it all supports the family. Yeah, it is rare, a rare luxury and I hope that it expands worldwide because there, there aren't too many DIR multidisciplinary clinics. And I've had practitioners tell me that they listen to this podcast to hear viewpoints from other practitioners as kind of a substitute for having those teams in place where they work. Mm -hmm, so certainly. yeah, um, tell us a little bit about what goes on with the feeding department. So sure. I assume you have a family comes in and they say, our kid isn't eating. Is that usually what's what's happening? And how do you handle it? <laughs> sure. So a little bit of history for our feeding program. Around the same time the agency was getting um, started, our founders were saying, what are needs in our local community that need more support? And historically, um, feeding programs are really often housed in medical settings. Um, so there's a, some many amazing feeding programs really um, in a medical hospital or in medical outpatient settings. And, um, you know, our early founders had had even worked in some of those locations and settings and thought it's sometimes hard for families who who don't always have a specific medical need to access feeding support or ongoing developmental based feeding support is another piece. When we start talking about feeding, we start to like in any theory base, we start to go down the roads of all the theories that might work on a, on on the needs around feeding. Um, so around the same time the clinic's getting started, we're using DIR as an agency, our, our interdisciplinary team gets started. So on that team, we had at early on developmental pediatrician, we had dietitians, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, um, psychology, social workers, uh, and MFT clinicians, marriage family therapists. So that's the context of our feeding team. So there's about 20 clinicians on it at any one time. And so we're looking at feeding as a need from all these different angles. Um, so when a family comes in for assessment, um, they generally meet with our assessment team is made up at this point um, by uh, a social worker, an occupational therapist, and a dietitian. Uh, historically, it was with the developmental pediatrician and an occupational therapist and a dietitian. And from that foundation, um, we very much in a DIR style, ask families to tell the story of their feeding experience. We see a really wide variety of clients in our feeding program, everything from infants who are just discharged from the NICU um, to a toddler who's labeled as a picky eater or has a limited diet, some way or shape, um, to older school age um, clients who have some difference in, in their um, feeding experience all the way up through young adults and actually some adults. Um, the adults we have referred in typically have diagnosis of um, developmental disabilities which qualified them for state funding. It's kind of a funding always gets pulled into the stories, um, but are generally adults um, with either an intellectual disability or autistic adults who are having difficulty participating in their day programs because participating in meals were just were really stressful, really overwhelming, and it prevented their access um, to community um, participation. So it's a really big stretch <laughs> of a client base. But the amazing thing is when you, we start hearing from families and when we meet them at the time of assessment and they start telling the story of um, what we're working on, we're not working on 
what we might think of um, as like a an eating disorder. It's like teen, adult, um, where this client previously had no problems with food and then something stressful happened in their life or something emerged and then it became more of a, a challenge. That really is a very specific specialty. So that's not the direction of our team. Our, our team is a developmental feeding program. So we look and primarily work with clients who have had some, some component of a challenge related to their feeding needs often since birth or early toddlerhood, um, or at some point very early on, there, there was some established stress around mealtimes that, that kind of perseverated. Um, often we see patterns that got established at you know, 12, 15, 18 months might be what meals look like six, seven, eight years. You know, If someone comes in at eight or nine, often that patterns or some of the needs were, were there pretty early on. So I, I'd like to, um, I, I'd like to just stress that sometimes a lot of kids issues around eating are sensory based and that's mm -hmm. where the occupational therapy component comes in, but maybe it's not always occupational. Like mm -hmm. you, there could be a medical reason. Absolutely. It could be a sensory reason. It could be something else. Mm -hmm. And I just know from experience of hearing other parents stories a couple of examples of sensory based are a child who literally vomits at the smell of an apple mm -hmm. so at you know a group where some someone has an apple in the room they have to remove that child from the room so that they don't mm -hmm. get physically ill um, another child who's a toddler who still only will eat mashed up food mm -hmm. cannot tolerate solid food at all is having problems chewing just just wants to swallow everything right away mm -hmm. um my my son i'm not sure if this is sensory or not but his whole thing is the visual thing so Absolutely. he will look at something and he'll be like no and he's 12. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he'll say no and my husband for better or for worse usually knows what he'll like and what he won't like and just from past experience knows he's gonna love this and he says you're gonna love it here take one bite and sort of just sticks it in his mouth and then he eats it and he's like mm. and then he eats the whole thing <laughs> um and so it's interesting because you know any kind of like super sauces like he doesn't want anything to do with that anything that's goopy or that can get all over his hands but then, you know, he started having French fries and he has no problem dipping it in the ketchup and he likes to eat with his fingers still, mm -hmm. even though he can use utensils now, it was delayed his ability to use utensils because mm -hmm. of fine motor control. Sure. Now he can, but he prefers to eat with his hands. And I've heard a lot of self-advocates mm -hmm. who are adults say they prefer to eat with their hands mm -hmm. and it's a sensory thing. So I'm just throwing all those sensory things out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, yeah, do you want to, quickly sure. medical, then get into sensory, and then we'll talk about other things after yeah. that. Yeah, and I'm just going to kind of keep on the topic that you're, you're currently talking about to, to also demonstrate that at times what's presented as a sensory problem, and everyone thinks, oh, OT is going to handle this, the sensory problem, is that it starts to meld into other needs. So for example, someone might come in and say, oh, my child has tactile sensitivity or flavor sensitivity or, or um, um, texture sensitivity in their mouth. And when we start really meeting them and, and looking at some of the some of the history and the way um, that client might engage around food and food experiences, we start to see, sure, 
it's easy to point that out as that's the sensory need of that situation. But then we start to look at all those other areas of individual difference where sensory skills really support your motor skill development. And it's easy to say, oh, it's a fine motor for self-feeding problem. But I would also say, we have to think of oral motor skills also similar to fine motor skill, where you need to have a very strong foundation of support in your body to be able to develop really efficient oral motor skills to manage food. And if you don't have very strong oral motor skills, you're not going to be able to move that food through your mouth and swallow it as efficiently. So your ability to cope with the sensory demand in your mouth is actually kind of challenged more because the food doesn't move through your mouth as quickly um, as another piece of that. Um, and I'd also pull in, you know, my, my experience with my dietitians and more medical things too, is that we also know um, not every child has food allergies and food intolerances. That's not ever something I want to say, but I do know, and there's lots of hit, um, uh, research just to talk about that often children who are labeled as tactile sensitivity um, might have underlying um, food allergy sensitivity. So that tactile sensitivity may be under, you know, rather than it coming from a touch, touch perception, it also could be coming from um, that perception feels different in that it might feel um tingly or burning and that sensation. And sometimes we see that and we might even see, um, you know, the client's hands starting to turn red or getting red and blotchy all around their mouth. And we're saying, oh, I'm worried that that might be not just sensitive skin because some people, again, <laughs> just having a wet cheeks sometimes make cheeks look a little pink or red, but also is there a underlying allergy that's also leading into that. And if the adults in the room are saying, oh, no, no, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. But the internal perception is, this is very uncomfortable. Then we have to make sure that we're really respecting each other, every body that comes into that space of what that, what that experience might feel like um, for them. So there's that. And then I can pull in my speech and language team um, and the, you know, the field of speech and language to really think about how do we conceptualize categories of food and language. So um, as OTs, we really love to categorize food by food texture and food flavor um, and the visual presentation of food. But our uh, SLP colleagues will help us also understand of how does the brain categorize information and how can you um, know inherently just by the visual experience what that food will be, the anticipation and the predictability of what that food might be. Um, you know, is this uh, a red ball or is it an apple? And how do I know which one is to eat and which one is to play with just based purely by the visual presentation? Um, similar, so many foods in particular, um, fresh fruits and vegetables, which tend to be parents' biggest areas of concern in limited diets. They're very variable between presentations. A packaged bag of, of cookies looks the same, the texture's the same, it breaks down in your mouth the same every single time you bring it out. Even um, prepared frozen chicken nuggets, you know, you it, it, parents figure out the just right way to prepare that food because if they don't prepare it the exact right way, then it might be turned away or refused because the texture feels different or the smell is slightly different. Um, but packaged foods tend to be very consistent. So they tend to be um, foods that um, individuals with sensory differences or um, limited diets tend to prefer those things that are really consistent on every single presentation. But blueberries, 
Sometimes blueberries are really sweet. Sometimes they're sour. Sometimes they're frozen. Sometimes they're mashed in a muffin. They're really not the same thing every single time you bring them out. And so some of our work uh, on in our work with families is really helping parents understand that idea of you've had this before and you like it, or you like it in this other presentation, therefore you will like it in this way, is one of those like, well, it is different. So let's acknowledge that this is a different food um, in, in those uh, types of food exploration. Yeah, it, there's so many different things. And um, I imagine that uh, it's a it's quite a process going through when you have a new client come in. Is there sort of like a checklist that you work through? Like, let's first rule out allergies, <laughs> then let's rule out, you know, some kind of medical problem with being able to swallow or not. And then right. let's look at the motor control. And then like, is there or is so, it totally different with everyone? Yeah, you know, we've toyed around with, should we have a more formal and standardized process that we do with everyone? We know that for research purposes, right? We want things to be really consistent and, and uh, predictable. So we have a very consistent process that we do in our assessment, but we use DIR as the guide for that. So we are really looking at in in our assessment, there's always some type of, we invite families to bring foods that we know that they're, that they're um, that the client will like, that tends to be preferred food. And we also ask them to bring one or two things that is something that is not preferred or, or maybe in the past they liked, but no longer accept. Um, and in that, just asking to show, show us what this looks like. It tells us so much, right? We can watch for family patterns. We can watch for dynamics. We can watch for the social exchange between the parents and the children. We can watch how, um, that client or, or young child's regulation supports their engagement with food. You know, sometimes that means that it's a toddler running around the room nonstop, and that's what mealtimes look like. Or other times it is, um, you know, a school-aged child picks up the food from the table and walks across the room to sit by themselves because they have to, um, it, it's too overwhelming to sit at the table with all these faces and instead get up and walk across the room and, and eat on their own. Uh, you know, there's just, it shows us so much. It also shows us in, in a snapshot and it's, you know, as we get to meet families, we know that the assessment is just one snapshot and we work really hard on staying really calm, trying not to have pressure. We also know, because for us, that's the foundation of their experience with us and our team. And so we don't want that client to feel like, whoa, that place is really overwhelming. Those people are really overwhelming. Someone who is very overwhelmed is not going to be able to openly engage with new food, new experiences, new people. Um, so we try really to keep everyone feeling safe and comfortable and just like, let's see what happens. Um, and then, you know, really using the developmental uh, capacities of just watching what happens. Do they maintain shared attention? Is there... Um, uh, circles of communication that happen throughout um, the, the mealtime experience. Can this, can this child sit and eat and at the same time socially reference others in the room and continue to have a conversation or tell us about their toys or, you know, can they talk about the food they're eating or do they have to talk about things not related to food right now? Um, or is that not what they want to do and that's not what they're interested in? And so what we're really we follow their leads to know how we respond and react. It's not a get someone to perform for us so we can test. Um, but in that, we are definitely assessing for underlying medical needs, hopefully reviewing some past um, 
anyone who comes in with a uh, more of a medical diagnosis, we do a, a full rundown of past medical records. Um, anyone who has a um, known um, previous challenge with dysphagia or swallowing safety, we would ask um, for clearance from their medical team. You know, we really want to make sure that those medical needs are met and supported. Um, our team is not the medical management of those things. We support their home medical team and their home medical team's recommendations. Um, and then you know, the, the OT watches for sensory and motor responses. And it's not a full, complete OT assessment. It's the OT component of a um, of the feeding assessment. Um, yeah, and then the dietitians do anthropometric measurements, look at history of um, weight gain and growth. What's, um, what's anthropomorphic? Oh, heights, like? heights and weights, yeah. Okay. Sometimes um, fat store measurements for people who are really underweight, we might want to look at, are they getting... Um, enough for their muscles to, to develop um, and grow. Lots of families are very worried about overweight, but it's we have to make sure they're getting enough. So those underweight clients, um, and often people are so worried that their child might be underweight that then food volume and amounts start to increase, increase, increase. And then there's actually a long-term concern um, that a child might be getting too much. So it's a, it's a, carefully watch that. Um, also, any client who has utilized food as their regulatory strategy, um, sometimes in, in other settings, people will use a lot of food rewards or a lot of food prompts. That's not necessarily a great foundation for your relationship with food if that's always given in exchange. Um, so we have to look at that and think about how does this, um, how does this person relate to that food and feeding experience? This is making me think that we need literally 25 more podcasts. <laughs> well, always I'm like, ooh, an hour. Okay, we, let's, let's see where we get. <laughs> We're going to like skim the surface of yeah. so many different things. Because, I mean, you brought up a whole component that I didn't even think of when we planned this podcast, which is just the interaction between parents and child, which is so obvious. If you have a parent who's saying, sit down now and eat this food, and the child is traumatized and a little bit scared, mm -hmm and then doesn't want to eat and then they get punished for it like that makes mealtime a horrifying experience and and they're going to avoid it on the other hand if you you know have um somebody who's letting you have access in the cupboards to every kind of junk food you want whenever you want and is hard it makes it hard to set limits because they're scared of their child getting meltdowns that's a whole right. other extreme and then just what you said in general, like, is the child regulated? Are they able to have a back and forth? You know, are are the parents, how are, how are the parents, FEDCs, are the parents able to stay calm and, and just have yeah. a back and forth as well? Um, are, are the parents being nitpicky about, you have to use your fork and eat this mm -hmm. way? Or are they being, um, my husband gets very self-conscious if we're in a restaurant with other people and my son is loud or, you know, things like that. He, he feels self-conscious. Um, so is that going to impact, you know, the meal time for my son if he's constantly like, shh, yeah. shh, 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 you know, and that foundation Which, of co-regulation, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and we've been pretty lucky. Um, but you know, when he was younger, like he'd be knocking down glasses of water, knocking over dad's coffee, throwing stuff across the restaurant. So like my husband was horrified. Right. And so uh, there, there's so many different interpersonal issues around the mealtime that, that just um, 
uh, is is something else. And and I just want to point out to listeners, uh, I did a podcast with Jake Greenspan about food time, which is is more about the the DIR concepts of eating and different things you can try to make mealtime more fun. So we're going to focus less on that because people can refer back sure. to that. And the, the rest of this information you've given is like so amazing. <laughs> um, it, and is there ever a time where you would say that it's not necessarily sensory related or medical related or interpersonally related, or is it everything pretty much under those three? I would say it's going to pull from one of those categories. Um, because even if someone came in just with a weight concern, we would say, oh, well, what are the underlying reasons that make um, gaining or growing difficult? And it could be a medical or genetic reason, right? So that pulls in um, medical, you know, that the biology of the body, does the biology of the body support these skills and support this type of work? Um, so yeah, generally it's going to pull from one of those, usually all of them in different, different amounts. And it's also really fascinating in there's lots of work happening in the pediatric feeding community, you know, and we had been doing some conferences. Um, historically, we um, have done some professional education conferences for, for clinicians. Um, and originally we didn't have it labeled as a DIR conference. It was just a feeding, developmental feeding conference. And the thing that was so fascinating that kept coming up is the participants of the conference kept saying like, but your videos don't look like our videos. Or like you oh, I think your clients might be easier than our clients <laughs> or um, no, I, I just, that's not what we're getting. We're getting kids who are crying and yelling and really upset and, um, you know, throwing things and um, just really, and in my head, and I think this is the space of where, how we conceptualize the foundation of our work as clinicians who use DIR as a model is the foundation of regulation and the foundation of safety. And so quickly we would all go, oh, yeah, that's not, one, that's not the video I would show at a conference, but more so like it tells me, wow, I wonder if you're actually working too high for where this individual is right now. And we need to come in and create, and you know, that that classic um, pyramid picture of, of the, the developmental capacities and strengthen the foundation and strengthen that foundation of, of we can be here calm together. There are times when we start with a client that we might not start with food right away. Um, if they have a set of foods that they're eating and they're maintaining their, their weight and their growth enough, um, we might start with really just regulation-based work first before we start working on food. Um, I wouldn't say that's common, but it has happened. You know, um, if, if this client has a hard time entering in the feeding kitchen and can't yet sit in the chair, my goal is then not going to be about making them sit in the chair. And I've done <laughs> years worth of time sitting under the table because that's where that client felt safest. And if we can do the work and they feel safe and we can get maintain that interactive process and it feels safe and we're all that classic like it's cooking we're all linked in we're all you know cued in however that can happen and sometimes i have to let go of my this is the way it should look feeling right and just kind of follow what that client needs in the moment and that's that's the model right let's see us using this model in the work so how do you approach parents who might say, no, that's absolutely unacceptable. <laughs> or grandparents say families yes. that have 
you know, they have, it's very important for them to have meal with their extended relatives and the extended relatives are the ones that are judgmental. And they'll say, you can't feed him under the table. That's not proper. (laughs) So how do you approach that whole thing? Because um, some people will just say, no, I'm not going to feed my kid under the table. Sure. Um, And we are located in Los Angeles County and we work with a very diverse, um, by by diverse cultural backgrounds of the families we work with. And that's another component that we start to loop in too, is each family has their own family expectations and and history. And then we have, you know, the components of culture that get embedded into that. How, what is allowed for food engagement, what's not allowed. And that's something we have to be attending to all the time. So when I'm looking at this client's regulation, we also have families in all of our sessions. (laughs) So, So while I'm looking at this client's regulation, supporting that, I also then am also kind of looking and testing the waters with the adults in the room of, or the the caregivers or the parent of how are they doing with with where we're at? Um, And a bit of that following the lead of that client's experience is also following the lead and keeping, you know, keeping tabs on the response and patterns of those who are there with us. Because if I'm starting to follow the lead of that client so much that the caregiver who is with that client is like, ooh, looking really uncomfortable, I need to know, what about this is is not resonating? What about this doesn't fit your family norm of what's acceptable with food interaction? Um, A classic example in, in the feeding process might be food exploration touch, taste, but without expectation of volume. So early on, we might be just tasting small bits of food, but sometimes it ends up with a lot of food waste where we're kind of discarding food where we we might lick it or do a small taste, but it was never meant to be consumed in a large volume. And really having to watch, what do families feel about that? Is is that okay? Is that that allowable? Um, So there's a piece of it, definitely. So there's some of that. It's it's taking um, pace on where they're at. So that that story of uh, a client who I literally treated under the table (laughs) in a room, um, thankfully his mom was so on board and she felt that throughout his day, he also, he was so motored through everything. You know, at school, he had a one-to-one that would kind of pull him along here and here and here. And she said it was one of the first times and in, in an ongoing interaction with him that the clinician just met him where he was at. And that was fine. And we could just meet him where he was at. And hey, if it's more comfortable to sit under this table because it's darker and it feels more contained and it feels like we have this tight little cocoon of our tent, which is just the table, it was possibly never about trying to avoid me or avoid the work. It just felt safer to do that work in that place. Um, And of course, then there's pieces of is that the best long-term strategy? No, but it was a step. It was the step in the direction to getting um, that that young boy feeling more comfortable around food and more comfortable with the routines of food exploration. So it was a step in the journey. <laughs> it's always a process, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And you just reminded me of when my son was a bit younger, when we'd go into you know a diner, for instance, and there's a booth he would always just crawl under the table and come to the other side, crawl under the table. And it had nothing to do with him wanting to eat under the table, but you know, just that need to move constantly. And so yeah. there could just be, um, we've, we've so many variables. Um, before I get into the next point, I wanna ask this before I forget, families listening might say, I need to talk to this Julie or her team. <laughs> do you guys do consulting virtually for people that aren't 
able to come physically to Pasadena and how does that work? Sure, we've done some consulting. The hard part is that our licensure laws prevent us from actually working with, you know, actively working on cases out, outside of the area. At times we can consult with their home clinicians. So if okay. they have an, an OT or an SLP who's working with them and working on some of those goals, we can kind of consult and talk to that person, but I can't actively, and that's a licensure law of our, of our fields of practice. So I can't be treating um, a, a client in a state that I don't hold a license in. Uh, and that's not necessarily an easy process to get license, a license everywhere. What um, about internationally? Similar, we, we could, could, we could kind, of, kind of talk about that case a little bit, but I'm not necessarily their, their treating clinician. I'm not you know, identified as I'm the person treating this issue, which is kind of a fascinating thing also with this kind of our current like telehealth and remote world. We actually, we are doing the, almost all of our feeding services currently remotely since COVID. Um, and we found it so far to be quite quite effective for a lot of families. We're literally every session is a home visit. You know, every session is in their environment for um, that place. And it really has strengthened our ability to coach and support families in doing that work versus having the clinician being the one um, actively leading all that work themselves. Um, it is, it is, it, we'd have to, we'd have to be really careful and make sure we weren't um, going against any of our state licensure. Right, right. Um, sometimes maybe just the conversation helps so much. Absolutely. And the, a thing that you actually had acknowledged too in your question is it's very common that a family might start working with one of our clinicians on our team and they find it really, really, really supportive. Um, and the part sometimes we have to impress upon people <laughs> and remind people is that when we make recommendations on a case, that's not our one way for treating every client who comes to us. That's our way of working with that one client. And that's something that, you know, clinicians do is we make recommendations and that's not just us here, but clinicians all over make recommendations for that need and for that client experience. And it might not be the recommendation we'd make for the very next family we work with in the next hour. Um, sometimes it's really fun to hear how excited parents are about one recommendation that was made. And this is, I think the hard part too, when, when families are having a hard time accessing care and accessing services, is that they're willing to try anything. And they'll hear one recommendation and think, that's the way you treat feeding. And it's like, well, there's a lot of variables that go into play. And then we wanna make sure um, ultimately our goal and when we're treating, kind of working on feeding needs is really how do we help decrease that stress and overwhelm for the family as an entire unit, um, not just expand the diet? You know, expanding the diet is an important goal, but that's not the only goal. It's also feeling safe together at mealtimes um, and helping that client work towards the underlying skill of being able to expand on their own curiosity and their own interest and their own interest in exploring, not because I'm telling them they should eat this new food, but rather working on that underlying, um, the underlying skill of, oh, I wonder what that would be like. Um, and it's not a quick process. It's time. It takes, you know, it's a slow graded approach at that. It, it does take some time sometimes. Yeah. So just because one child felt safe sitting under the table and eating, doesn't mean that other children feel safe oh, no. sitting under the table and eating. So, <laughs> no. you know, it, it, like you said, it's totally individualized. Um, every, every kid mm -hmm. is different. And um, it, I, it, 
made me think of something else that may or may not be relevant to what we're talking about. But <laughs> I was always a super picky eater as a kid. So was my brother. And so was my mother. And she talks about mm -hmm. when she was younger, one of five kids, she was the only one that my grandma made a separate meal for her because yeah. she was fussy. And that was accepted. And then therefore my mom was more lenient with us. And, you know, just little things like um, when we ordered pizza, I would take off all the toppings, eat them, mm -hmm. and then take off the cheese, put it aside, throw it out, and then I'd eat the bread. And just different things like that. Sometimes it's just the way kids like to do things. It, it mm -hmm. may or may not have had anything to do with the sensory issue, or it, it may just have been the way I like to do things, which I think is different than someone who literally can't swallow food, like yeah. you were saying. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's just different needs. And um, we, which, which piece do I want to <laughs> comment on? Um, it's when a family, if, if a client's coming in with a presented um, limited diet, um, limited food variety, it is fairly common that someone else in their family also has a history of limited diets. That's not, that, that wouldn't surprise me. It's pretty common. Um, it could be one parent, it could be both parents. Um, and sometimes that parent might say, I don't want my you know, they might still have limited diet and that, that parent might say, I don't want my child to have the limitations that I had growing up. Or that parent says, it's, it's difficult for me now as an adult when I go to work meetings and I feel so uncomfortable sitting with my colleagues and I don't want to make this a big thing. So I want, I want something different for my child. But that's sometimes really hard because for them, we're expecting the child in that home to have more variety than that's ever modeled for them. And so it's always expecting that child to do something very different than what the rest of the family is doing. So there's some, you know, there's some family work around that of is, is that fair to the child? What types of skills can we work on together as a family? <laughs> um, you know, to think about how does everyone feel comfortable or not um, in that food exploration process? Yeah, well, I think it's that time of the podcast that um, I will go to members of Affect Autism have the opportunity to ask questions. And we have a question in from a member who has two sons and mealtimes are really frustrating in her home. And they're both very selective eaters. She spent so many time, um, so much time thinking, you know, what am I going to do? Do I have to make all kinds of food? And then hope that they eat something, but then I, I don't want to waste all that food every day. And sometimes I just want to sit and enjoy a meal and just enjoy it for myself. But, um, you know, one of the child children eats very little and sometimes throws up when they're not eating enough and is really small. The other one is eating tons of pasta and bread and the mother's worried that they'll get overweight. Um, on top of that, they're all running and moving and one might be um, playing with the teddy bear eating and drawing pictures. The other one is constantly moving, running and crashing into furniture and uh, is totally disconnected if they are sitting. So um, this mother's tried different things like putting a, a plate on the side for suspicious foods where they can put it aside, but maybe just having it on the table is frustrating. And I can relate to that because if my son doesn't want something, I'll say, okay, put it aside. Nope, he needs me to move that plate entirely out of his line of vision. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so, you know, she's just really overwhelmed because she she doesn't even know where to start or, or what's, what's the most important thing to focus on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
so often we work with families who have multiple children <laughs> and multiple children with different varieties uh, um, in their own skills um, and different varieties of the sensory regulatory profile and where one child might be really calm and avoidant and uh, another might be really a movement seeker to support their regulation in a different way. Um, so I always think about um, parents who are having to figure out the right balance in any moment of their daily routines where their two children have very separate or different needs that don't just neatly go along together. Because that same problem, those same needs probably also arise at, you know, bedtime routine or bath time, you know, where how do you support one while the other is going to have a hard time? Um, but the meal times are probably a place that there's this, you know, multiple times every day we're trying to or hoping to come together. Um, and I also recognize so much of the parenting experience is so wrapped into feeding experiences and a parent's feeling of their own capacity in the parenting role of their ability to just feed their child is, is a big area. There's a lot of work and a lot of our uh, mental health and counseling team helps support families in that. What does that mean when, when feeding your child is, is so challenging? Um, and so a parent's own feeling of confidence or feeling of um, comfort in, in that process. Um, on this case, an interesting piece, uh, things that stuck out to me um, for the description of this smaller child who's, who's um, has a history of throwing up. I wouldn't, I don't want to ignore that. I don't want to ignore that this child has a history of um, vomiting. I know that, that when children have, um, a hard time managing sensory experiences that a gag response is pretty common. Um, but hopefully that does not trigger a full vomit. And so that it, if it is purely from a sensory point of view, that's a very strong response. Um, also, sometimes that's pulled into like a behavior reason. I'm not suggesting it is, but people will say that it is. Um, but it's really not comfortable to vomit. You know, so I, I would want us to not just write that off of, oh, as sometimes that happens, don't worry about that. Well, is there something else underlying of just that child's biology? Maybe their, their esophageal sphincters aren't as tight, you know, it's not, they're not ma making that happen. Um, or maybe they have a little bit of underlying reflux. Also that size and low weight is a cue to us of, does this child, even within a limited diet, get enough volume to maintain their, their, their weight gain and growth. Um, we see that in limited diets that a child could actually be gaining and growing really well. They just eat very few foods. And that's actually, they're responding really well to their body's cues for that need. So if a child's not growing, also those small could be that they're actually growing fine. It's just the parent's perception is that child is small or they're smaller than their sibling was at that point in time, but it could still be within expected ranges. So there's some more questions that I would go, Ooh, I have some questions about, <laughs> you know, let's think about some of these, those little pieces around, around that child to begin with. Um, the other, we hear the story of a child who really likes a lot of those carb based foods. So pasta and bread, um, makes me think, Oh, I bet that also a part of that for that child is, um, they might really resonate to the feeling of fullness you get when you eat a lot of carbs. Um, they, they often go in and kind of expand a little bit. So they really give you that, your tummy, that strong feeling of fullness. Um, also they're foods that break down really easily. So from an oral motor point of view, they're sometimes a little bit easier to manage or they break down in saliva pretty quickly, just kind of 
underlying components that I start to pull from and think about, okay, let me think about this child as their, their own being. Um, okay. So what would I recommend just at the get-go for this mom who's wanting to desperately support her children? I would start without bringing out foods that they don't yet already eat. I would take some of that pressure off the table, literally take it off the table. Um, if a child has a limited diet and is not yet even eating their preferred foods, it is safe place with the, with a sibling present, I would start there. I would start both of them having the foods that we know that they like and work first to see can't, is the goal of our two children eating together, our first goal. And if that's our first goal, let's have those two children being offered foods. We know they like foods they're interested in. Um, you know, it could be one is eating one is eating pizza and one is eating pasta, but they're eating in a shared location, and that's our first step towards that goal. That could be um, other families actually. That's not their first goal, and other families say, actually, I think food variety for my two children, the weight gain of this younger child, is my first goal more than my two boys eating together. So instead, um, I will eat with the with the younger uh, low weight child. I'm being the mom in that story, and the other parent will eat with the other child and will kind of divide um, because maybe that works better for their family um, so that both children get an experience of eating with a caregiver or someone that's important to them so they're not alone by themselves. Um, but then there's a little bit more support. It also works well for families when there is a, um, a young child with really baseline regulatory challenges that they sometimes really need that one-on-one -on -one support at a meal. So adding in a sibling or a peer of another experience just adds a little bit more um, regulatory challenge to that interaction. So really focusing on regulation for both children. I'm gonna guess that maybe that older child in that story has um, is, working on some higher capacities and the baseline regulation isn't the need um, and the younger one the baseline regulation is probably where the focus of attention is so really thinking about you know using those developmental capacities to help understand where they might be at because they also then start to tell you what strategies might be effective at those different points in time too so if a child's really working just on regulation then our strategies really should be focused on regulation um, Another part in feeding is hunger, <laughs> perception of hunger, response to hunger, and the impact of hunger on baseline regulation. We can't separate from all of this. Um, hungry children can't organize themselves well, <laughs> um, but some children, oh, yes. Hungry mamas can't organize <laughs> right. themselves well. Hungry me can't organize myself well. Um, so. The idea of like withholding food to get them hungry enough often really backfires because you take this this um, this child's you know body and experience um, take away something that's literally supporting their baseline regulation and then expect them to cope even more with new foods or exploring new foods. It's really not an effective strategy. So I wouldn't use hunger as a, oh, we're just going to take away all their favorite foods and wait for them to eat this other food. We've seen clients that that's been tried um, and they might go days without um, food or hydration. And that's not an effective strategy to get um, keeping their body feeling safe, keeping the engagement with food feeling safe. Um, so always working on how do we first feel comfortable just being together. Now, some some clients of ours and some children 
shared attention of a meal just isn't the skills that are are easiest for them, or it's not what's working best for that family. And that that child um, or <laughs> older child or teen, whoever it might be, um, the skill of maintaining shared attention with others at a meal is, or just shared attention with others is too hard at the same time as coping with the sensory demands of that meal. And so every once in a while we'll meet a client that we think um, if the family is wanting to support just them, that, that safety, that, that food volume, that sometimes having them set, sit separate from a family member might be a recommendation. It's not our go-to recommendation, right? There's never, there's really rare times that we recommend removing or keeping separate, but every once in a while we'll meet someone who it's just, you know, it might be a teen who says, I, I'll try these new things. I can't sit next to my brother and do it at the same time. It's too hard and it's too hard for me. And I, it's better. It's easiest for me. I feel safest when I can just sit in my other, in the other room. Um, so it's sometimes where we start and, um, and particularly when working with teens and adults is really honoring their voice and really honoring what they have to say about, about this work and situation um, to make sure that we're being respectful to their opinion on what they hope to have happen. And I know you touched on rewards and the danger of the relationship with food, but what about parents who say, if you eat this, then you can watch your iPad, or if you finish your dinner, then we can go buy a toy at the store, or, you know, like trying to use I am so desperate for this kid to eat. I'll do anything to get them to eat. Um, I'm guessing you'll say that's not a good viable long-term strategy, but <laughs> but you know um, we have to do what we have to do. Maybe once or twice it's fine. But do you have anything to say about that? That yeah, might and there's there's something different from saying, oh, let's finish up dinner so we can move on to something else, right? Like you know we're gonna we're gonna all do five more bites and then we're gonna move on and we're gonna go. Uh, play with the switch. You know, that that's a different thing. It's not necessarily saying your reward for taking five bites is you get to go play with your Nintendo. Okay. It's saying this is the this is the limit of that I that we're we're expecting for us all here together and then it's done. So rather using that as a pacing mark rather than a that's your reward for doing it. And I think that sometimes there's every once in a while there's things like that where it's like, well, did someone infer that that was the reward when I just meant, no, we're doing five and then we're done, you know? Um, so there's times we might do that. Someone, sometimes some children need a little bit more clarified expectation of what, what is expected of them. And, and if they're maintaining their regulation and very comfortable and it's something that is relatively familiar to them that we, and someone might be underweight and so we're trying to make sure they're getting enough that we might give a little bit more of a prompt of that volume um but in general i wouldn't go with there was a french fry commercial <laughs> a couple of years ago where it literally was like you know using french fries as you know a, a currency for for other things and i i think it was even like here's broccoli and brock a piece of broccoli is worth five french fries or you know <laughs> this is worth two french fries I, I don't think <laughs> that's a good long-term strategy in part because what happens when you don't have French fries? Um, what happens when that, when that, when that currency is no longer uh, valid? Um, it also separates the food um, acceptance and food experience. Um, it makes it very driven by the adult in that exchange and it makes it very external. 
And often you get a child who's working through that from a place of a little bit high stress and a little bit of, um, think of the emotional experience that might feel if you already had a hard time with food and you already, your body naturally was kind of overwhelmed by the, those foods. And then you had someone kind of dangling your favorite food in front of you for that. Um, I would worry that this child starts to feel a little bit tense, a little bit flooded, a little bit anxious. Um, and that's what they feel like in their body when they're trying to eat a meal. And that's not a good place. That's not a good, that's not how your body should feel when you're eating a meal. It impacts digestion, it, it impacts, you know, baseline regulation, and it impacts your baseline ability to cope with those sensory demands that are being presented. So rather than working on, you know, building um, sensory tolerance from that foundation of comfort, you're automatically flooding their body to this, this high arousal, overwhelmed state, and then you're adding in challenges on top of it. So I would try not to have that be <laughs> um, a strategy, but of course, parents do that, right? Parents of, of lots of children do that and all children. Um, I would say in a child who doesn't otherwise have any significant feeding challenges, once or twice is probably fine. It's not going to do too much harm. But if that was your go-to strategy uh, for always exploring food, I don't think it would be um, sustainable long-term as the option. And I, I really like how you brought up that point, which we didn't bring up yet, but um, wrapping up here, it's just such an important point to have that intrinsic motivation of the child. So we don't want them to be doing things because they were told to and ir irrespective of what their experience is about it. Um, I know that sometimes, you know, my son who is a very good eater, eats a lot of food, he'll leave a couple of bites and I'll say, Oh, finish up. And he'll say, no, I'm done. And to me, that tells me like, he's full. Why am I going to force him to stuff his face after he's full? Right? We don't want to set up that precedent either. Other times, will eat, he'll eat so much food. And then he'll say, I'm hungry. I want more. I want more. He may or may not still be hungry. He may, you know, it, it's hard to tell, but yeah, I think just, um, really giving the child that sense of safety is the theme that I heard throughout this podcast that the child needs to feel safe, regulated, and then slowly build up from there, depending mm -hmm. on where the focus of the goals are. So thank you so much for this podcast. It was such, such great wealth of information for parents. And I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of questions from parents. Um, feel free to look at the podcast at affectautism.com, search feeding, and there's a comment section. Maybe parents can put some examples in, and look at each other's answers. Um, if we get some comments there, I'll, I'll let Julie know. She may be able to jump in and sure. give a couple of pointers and stuff. Um, thank you so much, Julie. And again, that's Professional Child Development Associates in Pasadena. I'll put links to all of the things we discussed in the blog post. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions. Hi, I'm Daria Brown, and I hope you're enjoying the podcasts at Affect Autism. Did you know you can get bonuses by becoming a member for as little as $5 US per month? Check it out at patreon.com slash affectautism. Thank you for your show of appreciation.